0: These are the Oldest Stories, online at oldeststories.net. We have finished with kings for a while, and so now we'll turn our attention to the gods. We will find, however, that the way gods and kings are written about in these ancient tablets is not all that different from each other. What if the case, what better god to focus on than the most interesting, titillating, contradictory, and syncretic god of ancient Mesopotamia, the goddess Ishtar? And I'm not the only one that finds her fascinating, since she has more surviving documentation than any other god, and don't quote me on this, but possibly any other character in cuneiform literature. She's already been a prominent character in this podcast because her primary temple was located in Uruk, but she has more stories than just those related to the Sumerian kings. Ishtar is a goddess that gets around both in her aspect as a god of love and desire, but also as an incredibly popular cult figure, arising as the goddess Inanna, and in fact that is almost certainly the name Gilgamesh himself would have used to refer to her, and branching out into Phoenicia under the name Astoreth, affecting the later cult of Aphrodite, getting a few disparaging mentions in the Old Testament, and even being mentioned as a going concern among Mesopotamian communities as late as the 10th century AD, as in all the way to the European Middle Ages. And actually, there are so many little details about Ishtar, including the fact that the oldest named author we know about, a woman named Aheduana, wrote some of the most extensive and popular hymns to the goddess, but it would be easy to get bogged down here. So we will start with the stories which will engender their own commentary. And so we'll begin pretty well near the beginning about 4,000 years ago, with the tale of Ishtar and Ea. Ishtar began with very little power. We assign labels to the ancient gods, like calling Enlil the god of wind, because it's generally their domain. But within the stories and among the gods, those domains had a certain fluidity to them. Because so much is lost, It is deeply unclear how the gods, in general, came to rule over their particular domain. But at some point in the lost ages of mythic history, Ishtar was walking around the desert and realized that, though she was a goddess, she either had very little power or was unsure of what her domain was. The other gods were reasonably established, but her lack of a domain stayed as a note in the back of her mind. One day, she was wandering in the desert when she spotted in the distance a particularly attractive shepherd. Now, there's no taboo among the gods against taking human lovers, and some gods had done it, some simply hadn't, or at least hadn't had stories told about it. And so Ishtar cleaned herself up a little bit, putting on a nice dress and wore her desert crown, and went to the shepherd and decided this would be the day she tried frolicking with a human. Now, this was going to be her first time, but being a god, she knew how it was done, and she knew that the experience was enjoyable. But it seems that when she turned her divine charms on a mere human, the lucky shepherd lay in the sand with eyes wide from a life-changing experience. And as the 4 millennia old clay tablet says, she realized that, quote, her genitals were remarkable. She praised herself full of delight at her genitals. She realized in that moment that though she believed she was a powerless minor god, in fact she held a particular power over the people around her. Now is this a social commentary, a metaphorical statement on gender roles, or simply a dramatic turn meant to be taken somewhat humorously? I usually tend to prefer the latter explanation in these stories, but given the nature of her worship, it is possible that Mesopotamians really did view sex as a particularly potent form of power. In any case, newly armed, she went to the major city of the Old Ages, a contender for the world's oldest city, Eridu. Eridu is at the mouth of the Euphrates River on the Persian Gulf, or at least where the Persian Gulf used to be since the site is now many miles inland. From an archaeological perspective, we could see that it was perfectly located to become the world's first city, in that it is a locus between farmers of the Euphrates Valley, the nomad herdsmen of the wilds, and the fishermen of the river and the Persian Gulf. And the city shows clear sections that there were three interests, each holding on to their own segregated territory, and where they came together is the market, the gains from specialization and trade feeding the luxuries of the city. And the Mesopotamians also knew that the city was deeply ancient, listing it as the first city founded in their Sumerian kings list, even before the great flood that destroyed mankind. And so in these early days of myth, the obvious place for Ishtar to go try out her new power was the city of Eridu, and the temple of her father Ea, also called Enki, god of wisdom, creation, crafts, and knowledge. As she arrived, Ea ordered his servants to put out beer and food for her visit, and they sat together, visiting cheerfully as family and divine colleagues. Things remained strictly PG until Ishtar subtly proposed a drinking competition. There being little else to do for fun in the early days of civilization, Ea agreed, and they began to drink in earnest. Well, as the drinking wore on and the god of wisdom's wisdom began to waver, Ishtar began to make her moves on him, since even though she had just discovered the power of womanly wiles as the goddess of love and desire, she was already skilled as one born to it. And the seduction quickly leaves family-friendly podcast territory and also happens to occur in an extended lacuna, a segment of clay tablet too damaged to read. And so when we return to readable text, we find that everyone's clothes are back on, and Ishtar holds in her hand the hundred myths of civilization, having tricked them from her father while he was impaired by drink and lust. What are the hundred mess? That is a bit hard to explain, since the Mesopotamians seem to have all known so well what they were that no one felt it was necessary to explain but they seem to have been physical objects imbued with metaphysical understanding or power over a certain thing. And so among the incomplete list of mess that exist and that Ishtar currently has in her possession, are things like the craft of the smith and the craft of leatherworking, but also things like holy purification rites, the shepherd's hut, and the piling up of glowing charcoals. These make sense in the usual way we understand mess, but they're also more abstract ones. She steals the mess of heroism, power, wickedness, righteousness, the plundering of cities, making lamentations, and rejoicing. She gains the mess of deceit, rebellion, kindness, being on the move, and being sedentary. What she has stolen from Ea and the first city— are the physical manifestations of the abstract aspects of being human and being civilized, technology, power, and behavior. And so Ea wakes up the next morning and calls in his servant. Ea knows immediately that the mess are gone, but tells his servant to search the town because last night Ishtar said that she would be staying a while in Eridu. The servant informs him that she's already stolen his boat and is traveling upriver to the currently infant city of Uruk. And Ea asks the servant if she's stolen everything, and the servant says, yes, she has. Ea rushes over to his inner sanctum and performs a magic ritual, communing with frogs and trees and fish, and it isn't really clear what he was trying to do, but whatever it is, it didn't work. Presumably having all the mess gives Ishtar a fair bit of power herself. And so... Magic having failed, he resorted to mere mortal means, sending his servant to go and stop her. The boat is in the river at this point, but still within the city limits, and the servant is able to hop on board as it passes a quay. "'My lady,' he says to the goddess, "'your father Ea has sent me. He has some very serious words for you, very serious indeed. Your father is an important senior god, and his words cannot be countermanded. He says,' You may travel to Uruk if you wish. You don't need to stay in Eridu as you promised, but you must turn over the boat of heaven and its cargo of mess to me immediately. How could you do this? Ishtar complained. How could he make a vow to me on his power and his sacred waters and then just send you to prove his words false? Did he intend to lie to me last night when he gave me all these things, or is he just an oath-breaker now? But the servant had clearly never intended to convince her to hand over what she had stolen voluntarily, and as she continues her diatribe, an army attacks the boat. Giants wade into the water while temple servants who crewed the boat are roused to rebel against Ishtar's command. Mermaids and giant fish swirl around the waters and the elite soldiers of the city of Eridu are deployed to close the canal of Surungal, which lays upriver. Ishtar stands at the prow of the ship, regally dripping with seductive majesty, as the creatures of land and sea rebel against her to take the boat back to her father Ea. She glares at them with disgust and stands glorious and still as a statue until she raises a single arm, her hand open to cast her power out as a beacon. She calls to Ninsheber, her personal attendant, who flies in from wherever she was and lands by her mistress's side. This boat and its cargo of mess was given to me last night by my father. Now he wishes to break his oath and have it back imbuing her attendant with newly enhanced power. She orders her, Defend my honor, Ninshibur. The servant of Ea tries one more time to reason with the goddess. He only made that promise after you intoxicated and seduced him. It hardly counts under those circumstances. We will take the boat back to the temple and find some other way to get you back to Uruk. And Ishtar said no. The battle between Ninshaber, the winged attendant, and the army of giants, mermaids, soldiers, and boatmen was apparently so epic that it destroyed the very clay tablet it was written on, and next we know of the story they have arrived successfully at the Gate of Joy in young Uruk. The city is feasting and rejoicing because the goddess Ishtar has gifted her favorite city with all the mess, that is, all the power and skills of civilization and set them on a course to become the greatest city in ancient Mesopotamia. Soon enough, money was flowing through the market, and the Temple of Ganser, Lord of the Underworld, was rebuilt to greater heights and splendor than before. The city of Eridu was gradually eclipsed, already well past its prime by around 2000 BCE, when the one copy of this story we still possess was written. Uruk, of course, would subsequently use the mess and its own divine and natural blessings to become the first largest city in history. But Ishtar isn't satisfied yet. The people of Uruk love her and she loves Uruk, but as of yet she has no place on earth. Having become smitten with ambition, she decides that nowhere but the greatest city will satisfy her, and nothing but the largest temple in that city will suit her grand desires. But it turns out that early in history, the best temple in Urk belonged to the god An, who is the father of gods and master of the heavens, the supreme deity of the pantheon. As an aside, this is what it says in the story, although other stories and our limited historical understanding suggest that the greatest temple in Uruk actually always belonged to Ishtar, but this story is part of Ishtar gaining power, and so she decides to steal the greatest temple in the greatest city from An, the greatest of the gods. In any case, the first thing she does is go to An and ask for him to hand over his temple. Pretty please. Aunt says no, but she isn't finished yet. She proposes that, ah, the matter concluded, we should have a nice dinner with lots of beer and fine clothes. She has one trick at this point, and she turns to that trick, seducing her grandfather and plying him with heavier alcohol late into the night. And finally, she cuddles up to him, like she had with her father, Ea. And, yes, all of this is a little bit gross, but family relationships mean a little bit less to the gods than they do to people, and she says in her softest, most lustful voice, having spent the night satisfying him, saying, Grandfather, can I have the temple Anna Oh, no, my lust, puppy, but you can have another round if you want <laughs> Ishtar frowned and stood from the bed in a huff. Wrapping herself quickly, she walked with as much dignity and indignation as she could muster and went to her brother Shamash. Now Shamash is the sun itself and another protector of Uruk. She brings him into a quiet room and caresses his cheek and says, "'Brother, I have set my mind to capturing the great heavens for myself. I want you to listen carefully.' And before she even told him what she wanted, young and excitable Shamash is already swearing an oath by heaven and the rainbow that he will follow whatever she tells him to do. Yes, listen, brother. I went to our grandfather, and I gave him a good time, and I let him kiss all over me, and even did the things we can write about in clay tablets, but not on the Apple Podcast app. But he still won't give me the Temple Ana. But the heavens are ours, brother, and the earth is ours, too, so listen to this plan and help me. And so they proceeded to scheme. And when the clay tablet picks back up again, Ishtar is in the swamp. Now even today there's a fair bit of marsh in modern-day Kuwait, but the region was less desert 4,000 years ago, and the marshlands were far more extensive, reaching much farther north up the two rivers than they do now. Ishtar is in the swamp and has commissioned a fisherman, who seems hesitant about the whole enterprise, but unwilling to disobey a goddess. She asks him to take her to a particular spot in the reed marsh near the Temple Ayana, but by a secret route. The fisherman says this is simply impossible because the winds won't blow a boat in that direction, but Ishtar waves him off and says she has it handled. Shamash the sun also has power over winds and blows the south wind to push the barge and the evil wind to poison the waters. With the waters poisoned, the temple cattle who grazed there caught sick and on sent his herdsman Shulazida, a giant scorpion man and protector of the temple, to retrieve the sick cattle. And so he waves out into the reed swamp, his heavenly lasso in hand, Shamash blows another wind, and Ishtar bursts out from her hiding spot in the winds to cut off the scorpion's tail, then throws the stunned guardian down and ties him up with his own lasso. With the temple ana undefended, she moves in to take it for herself. As soon as control of the temple transfers to the usurper goddess, An, senior-most god of the heavens, feels his power diminish. He cries out that without the temple, his power in the heavens will wane, and daytime itself will shorten until both day and night are equal. Apparently, in the mythic age, day was much longer than night, which seems inconvenient for people who live in such a hot climate. But anyway, An cries out that Ishtar has surpassed him in power and captured a temple so great that all of humanity would worship at her feet instead of his. And indeed, the archaeologists find that An was very rarely worshipped directly in Mesopotamian society. The anthropological explanation is that An was the highest of the gods and simply too remote and important to bother with day-to-day prayers, while the ancient Sumerian explanation was apparently that he had lost his temple to the younger and more active gods and goddesses. We are on a lightning round today, having flowed from the tale of Ishtar and Ea to the tale of Ishtar and An. These are separate stories in the clay tablets, but I'm combining them since they do seem to chart a constant narrative. That narrative continues with the tale of Ishtar and Ebih, which opens with Ishtar as a goddess in full power and splendor, clad in terror and riding on great divine powers. And with all this power she has gained a taste for gaining more power, and when her powers of lust won't get her what she wants, she also has power as a goddess of war. She's traveling the world now, launching expeditions from Uruk and returning drenched in blood after running around the great battlefields. She pacifies land after land with her beauty or her sword, Truly, she is at this point one of the most terrifying gods of the Sumerian pantheon and is developing an ego to match. And so one day she crosses the Lullaby Mountains into the land of Elam, and these are the Elamites from the Bible living in modern-day western Iran, and all fall before her might. And then past that, she comes to the mountain Ebe. Now, there are some tall mountains in the Iranian highlands, but Ebe takes the cake— Both massive and majestic, it wears its luxurious foliage like a green velvet cloak. It was too beautiful, too tall, and worst of all, when Ishtar approached it, it did not shrink itself down in due deference to the goddess. She glared at the geological formation, furious at the lack of respect. And so she announces that it is time for the game of Ishtar to be unleashed, that game, of course, being war. She gathers her army and equips them with battering rams and flaming arrows to burn the trees and knock down cliff faces. She does something to the little creeks that run down the mountain, either drying them up or poisoning them. And with her martial prowess, she humbles the mountain, and up in the heavens, the gods look on in terror. Now the question arises at this point, is this whole battle a metaphor for war consuming a particular city located on Mount Ebe? And while there could be an element of that, I just haven't seen any secondary sources talking about it like that. Rather, she seems to literally be destroying a mountain, and not just any mountain. Her grandfather An is up in heaven with the other gods looking down, while she does this with a mix of fear and outrage. She can't destroy this mountain, he protests, and he means it in both senses. She should not destroyed ecosystem so rich that it promotes the growth of attractive and useful plants and animals, and is a landscape feature attractive on the horizon, and she should not be able to destroy so powerful a mountain. And as the gods look on, the rock turning to rubble, Ishtar takes her divine dagger and, roaring like thunder, stabs it deep in the heart of Mount Ebe, splitting it apart and killing the mountain. And she steps back in triumph, declaring loudly that she has humbled the great mountain before her, like seizing the tusks from an elephant. And the mountain is beaten, but more importantly, she knows that her audience in the heavens got the message, loud and clear. A great mountain can be brought low if it disrespects Ishtar, and how many among the gods can stand against that amount of power? With this story, she has confirmed her rise from an obscure daughter of the high gods to one of the seven Anunnaki, the great gods of Sumeria. And she was popular, too. As the passionate goddess of lust and the powerful goddess of war, she has something for everyone and everything a good Bronze Age king could want from life, aside possibly from alcohol. And indeed, It isn't just the kings of Uruk who favor her and receive her favor in turn, but later kings throughout Mesopotamia claim her as a protector and patroness. But before we get too caught up in singing her praises, there is one more story we have time for today, another one that speaks to her power, her temperament, and her very female aspect of both love and war. This one is Ishtar and Shekhaletudam, It is an odd one from a modern standpoint and hard to say what to make of it exactly, but it's a revealing story nonetheless. This tale begins with a fully-powered, mature Ishtar who continues to wander the earth, inspecting and affecting it however she desires. This day, she has been struck by a particular inspiration— She summons her magical raven and instructs it to go to the temple of Ea in Eridu, where the god of wisdom and crafts kept a special garden. The raven is to use the coal plant and some leeks and mix it with the holy oils of the god Ea and chew it all together until it forms a seed. No word is given on whether... A.A. is upset by this, or it seems to all just be fine to go send ravens into other people's temples and eat their holy oils. Then the raven is sent to go plant that seed somewhere. The raven does as ordered, and when he spits out the seed, it grows into something the Earth has never seen before. A date palm. Ishtar has just invented palm trees, good for eating, good for making brooms, good for weaving the strands. Ishtar was so excited that she went on a tree-planting binge, not just date palms, but all sorts of trees. Now, at the same time, there was a man named Shikalatuda, son of Igisigsig, who, aside from being from a lineage of terribly silly names, was also a gardener, except that Shikali Tuta was an exceptionally poor gardener, simply the worst. Literally every plant he tried to grow withered to dust, and one wonders how he simply hasn't starved to death at this point. But he is just the world's worst gardener, the brownest thumb, the least fertile man in existence. And so imagine his surprise when a dust storm blows through his house. That's not surprising. They live in Mesopotamia. And when it had calmed down, the surprising part, he looks out the window to see a massive, flourishing Euphrates poplar tree with broad shade leaves out in his garden where nothing had ever grown. And imagine his further surprise when in the shade beneath that tree lay the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen sleeping soundly, as if she had been wandering and planting trees all day or something. Shikali-Tuda went up to the sleeping woman to get a closer look, and pretty much as soon as he, he decides she's soundly sleeping, he removes her loincloth of the seven divine powers, pushes her on her back, kisses her intimate places, and has his way with her, then retreats back to his house. When Ishtar wakes up, She feels something is wrong and inspects herself. And let me quote directly from the translation of the clay tablet because I could not tell the story better. Then the woman was considering what should be destroyed because of her genitals. Ishtar was considering what should be done because of her genitals. She filled the wells of the land with blood, so it was blood that the irrigated orchards of the land yielded. It was blood that the slave who went to collect firewood drank. It was blood that the slave girl who went out to draw water drew. And it was blood that the black-headed people drank. No one knew when this would end. She said, I will search everywhere for the man who has had intercourse with me, but nowhere in the lands could she find the man who had intercourse with her. The clay tablets, very repetitive, but sometimes very descriptive. And when Shikala heard about this, he ran to his father and explained the situation. His father said he should flee flee into the city since the city is so big that no one will be able to find him there. And so Ishtar rode a dust storm to search the land and kicked up so much dust that it choked the whole world. And Chikala thought he wasn't safe in the city so he ran deep into the mountains to be even harder to find. Ishtar grew more and more furious demanding that someone would be made to pay for what had been done to her. Her father Ea, god of wisdom and creation, gave her the power to become a star in the sky, the evening star, what we call the planet Venus. And from that high vantage point, Tuda saw her and shrank down into his little crevice in the mountains. But the jig was up. Ishtar's diatribe to her violator is mostly unreadable. The translator was able to recover four words. How. Dog. Ass. Pig which I think give a good enough sense of what she said. Shikala response is unbelievably weak, using lots and lots of words to basically say that he saw her and she was so pretty that he couldn't help himself. Understandably unimpressed, Ishtar slays the world's worst gardener, thus enacting justice. In these stories... We see Ishtar as a passionate character and get a good sense for the particulars of her realm. She is a goddess of power, vengeful and petty, and hence a popular patroness for the Bronze Age monarchs of Uruk. She is a goddess of love, but not of marriage or childbirth, just the wild and passionate parts of love that hold power over men and women. She is a goddess of war, where she can use strategy tricks, and raw force to enact her will over the world around her. It's no wonder, then, that with such an interesting character and with such a useful sphere of influence, that she would remain a popular god long after much of the rest of the Mesopotamian pantheon had faded, with cults surviving even a few hundred years past the Islamic conquests. Next week, we will focus on her main mythic narrative, the tales of Ishtar and her lover Dumuzid. But before I go this week, I wanted to read for you a section of a hymn to Ishtar. Honestly, in this podcast, I've been focusing on mythic accounts, but far and away the most common thing written down from 4,000 years ago appears to be religious hymns, prayers, and incantations. And even among the myths, large sections go off on tangents that are basically hymns to the glory of whatever god or hero is being discussed and they're generally too repetitive and frankly boring and pointless to spend a whole episode on hymns. But I've selected one to give a little bit of flavor. This one is imaginatively entitled Inanna C. Inanna being the old Sumerian name for Ishtar, and is a particularly interesting hymn because it is the first work of any sort for whom we know the author, a woman named Eheduana, the daughter of the great Sargon of Akkad, and so we can therefore date it very accurately to right around 2250 BCE. Remember here that the Anunnaki are the great gods of Sumer as opposed to the lesser Igigi gods. It opens like this. The great-hearted mistress, the impetuous lady, proud among the Anunnaki gods and preeminent in all the lands, the great daughter of Suen, exalted among the great princes, the magnificent lady who gathers up the divine powers of heaven and earth and rivals great An, is mightiest among the great gods. She makes their verdicts final. The Anunnaki gods crawl before her august word, whose course she does not let An know. He dare not proceed against her command. She changes her own action, and no one knows how it will occur. She makes perfect the great divine powers. She holds a shepherd's crook, and she is their magnificent preeminent one. She is a huge shackle clamping down upon the gods of the land. Her awesomeness covers the great mountains and levels the roads. At her loud cries, the gods of the land become scared. Her roaring makes the Anunnaki gods tremble like a solitary reed. At her rumbling, they hide all together. Without Inanna, Great An makes no decisions, and Enlil determines no destinies. Who opposes the mistress who raises her head and is supreme over the mountains? Wherever she goes, cities become ruined mounds and haunted places, and shrines become wasteland. When her wrath makes people tremble, the burning sensation and distress she causes are like an Ulu demon ensnaring a man she stirs confusion and chaos against those who are disobedient to her, speeding carnage and inciting the devastating flood, clothed in terrifying radiance. It is her game to speed conflict and battle, untiring, strapping on her sandals. Clothed in a furious storm, a whirlwind, she wears also the garment of ladyship. They proclaim your magnificence. You are are the lady highest. An and Enlil have determined a great destiny for you throughout the entire universe. They've bestowed upon you ladyship in the assembly chamber. Being fitted for ladyship, you determine the destiny of noble ladies. Mistress, you are magnificent, you are great. Inanna, you are magnificent, you are great. My lady, your magnificence is resplendent. May your heart be restored for my sake." Your deeds are unparalleled, your magnificence is praised. Young woman Inanna, your praise is sweet. Join us next time for more of the goddess Ishtar. Thank you for listening.